Welcome to the Art Stays Here Coalition's new podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. In the series, we'll hear from folks affected by the ongoing arts, music, and cultural displacement that's happening across the country. These include artists, musicians, and other creatives, as well as developers, policymakers, funders, operators, arts and cultural leaders, and more. They will share their stories and their own voices to best communicate the impact that cultural displacement has had on individuals and communities and how we can choose to make it stop. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Stays Here podcast, sometimes known as Culture Crisis Conversations. We're here today at the record company at 960 Mass Ave. Why don't we each introduce ourselves, say what kind of art or business we practice and where you live. Amy Bennett, volunteer member, Art Stays Here, longtime arts administrator, publicist, band manager, Matt MacArthur, uh, founder and executive director of The Record Co., uh, which is a nonprofit music workspace uh, based out of Dorchester or Roxbury or Boston, depending on who you ask. And uh, I am a like singer-songwriter, piano player type, turned arts administrator, turned cultural real estate developer, I guess. Most of Record Co.'s work and the work I've been doing over the last few years focus on building and operating music space. Popcorn, Sasha Pedro. Sasha Pedro, um, general manager of 55 Morrissey, which is a monthly music rehearsal space in Dorchester that is operated by the Record Co. Uh, I also play guitar in a couple bands. I fiddle with other instruments. You I'm fiddle? trying to learn the fiddle. Uh, and yeah, and I just exist in the local music and art scene as both a musician. Um, a performer, a freelance photographer, and just a general um, patron of the arts. Great. Thank you. Um, I want to mention that we're here today at 960 Mass Ave, which is the Record Co.'s main location for hourly, daily, and recording. I have never been here before, sad to say, and it's fantastic and jaw-dropping. Uh, also, Ethan Dussault from the Coalition and Jim Healy from 55 were here earlier. They had never been here before. So you have a lot of uh, old white people jaw-dropping today. <laughs> we're very happy to have you, regardless of your group identities. Uh, this is a place for everyone, including old white people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, let's talk about, let's give an overview of uh, TRC, how it came to be. Um, its evolution, kind of how it, you know, operates, um, staff, board, you guys, etc. Sure. So I'll take the kind of 960 founding and up to 960 and then hand it to Sasha for 55, if that sounds good. Um, so Record Co. started about 12 years ago. It was a very simple idea at that time. Uh, it was, let's make a recording studio that doesn't belong to anybody. Uh, and that came out of a realization that the ownership of the studio, either by an individual or by an institution, uh, for example, like an educational institution where you had to pay tuition to go there, um, that the ownership model was actually the source of most of the gatekeeping. So who was and wasn't allowed to use it was based on who owned it. And so um, I was just staring at the ceiling one night and said, you know what, why don't we make a place that doesn't belong to anybody and everybody can use it and the end. 
Um, I also recognized at that time that, uh, and myself included, I was a, I was still you know performing and writing as a, a songwriter and a piano player. Um, that there was a lot of people who you know talked about wanting to own or operate a recording studio that I didn't feel were fully in touch with themselves and what they actually wanted. Um, what I my theory was they actually wanted to be recording engineers and producers and or recording artists, and that the business of actually running a studio was in a lot of ways a distraction from the thing they were actually trying to do. And so there would be a function for an organization uh, that did the everything up to the part of recording, producing, actually making the work creatively and technically um, so that those folks could focus on the thing they actually cared about, which was um, the music making part, not the part about spreadsheets and making sure the air conditioning's working and toilet paper in the bathrooms and all that fun stuff. We'll talk plenty about toilet paper, I'm sure, when we get to 55. Um, So flash forward a little bit. Uh, started in the basement of a youth center, uh, which was a trade for space. That space flooded shortly after we moved into it, Where? so we had to start Where over. Where was it? It was in Central Square. It was oh. in the, the Area 4 Youth Center in the port in Cambridge. And that space flooded, uh, and that forced us to move. We found a space uh, in a different part of the same building at 960 Mass Ave in, uh, actually via Craigslist. And uh, it took a, a many months, but convinced the owner here to let us move in. His initial attitude was, no musicians in my building. Um, he'd had some bad experiences in the past. Uh, what did someone say? They said they were going to open a a record store, or maybe they said they were going to open a studio, and what they actually did was open a, like an illegal nightclub. Um, and they got shut down the first night it was open <laughs> because there's a fire inspection station right across the street. And the fire officials were like, "What? why are there 300 people standing outside that building in the middle of the night? Um, so he wasn't he was pretty averse to music as a use in his building. Uh, but we eventually convinced him and then uh, really showed him that, you know, musicians and music makers can be a great tenant and a great partner. Um, over time, that facility, that first studio we built got busier. We built a second one. We ended up in a kind of Swiss cheese scenario where we were in a couple spaces in the building and it wasn't very efficient. And so when the building got renovated uh, a few years ago, we did a couple of things at the same time. We made a really important strategic decision to focus all of our efforts on space and technology. So we discontinued all, any and all like educational programming. We actually discontinued youth programming, um, which is a very popular thing to do as a nonprofit. Let me tell you, great strategic move. Go to all your donors and be like, no more kids. They love that. Um, but we said, actually the thing that we are are really great at doing and the value we're providing is is being a space and technology operator on behalf of music makers and also on behalf of organizations that make music. Uh, and so interestingly enough, at that same time, we also decided to expand. So we sort of said, we're going to focus and we're also going to expand these two studios that are hosting 1400 reservations have now become 20 studios that are hosting, sorry, 1400 a year, uh, have become 20 studios that are hosting like a thousand reservations a month. So we're doing just about the volume. We're serving just about the same number of people every month that we used to serve in a year in this new facility, which is, which has now been open for about two and a half years. Um, so yeah, and, and that strategic decision has been super important for us as an organization. There's actually more young people, more teaching, more education, more learning. 
happening here than there ever was in the old space, in part because of the fact that we've said we don't do that. And therefore, it's opened the door for all these other organizations, Beat the Odds Boston, Beats by Girls Boston, Boston Raising Powerful Musicians, Brighter Boston. Everybody starts with a B and has the word Boston in their name. Um, But tons and tons of youth serving Community Music Center of Boston. Um, tons of youth serving and other organizations with adjacent missions that are now, instead of building their own facilities, uh, using this one and relying on us to make sure if they need five rooms every Wednesday night that there's a, you know space and technology for them to do that. We've also gotten way more sophisticated about how we think about who we exist for. So initially it was like, it's going to be a place for everyone, and it still is a place for everyone, but we've gotten much more sophisticated um, about how we think about group identities, who has historically been excluded from environments like this. Um, so we have a strong focus on music makers of color, on music makers who identify as women or as non-binary, in order to try and make, a again, a space that has been a, you know, a real white dude hang for a long time, a space where everybody, um, truly everyone, uh, can, can feel like uh, is for them and is, a, is an on-ramp for them to make music. Can you give an overview of this facility, um, you know, not down to nuts and bolts, but like generally what goes on here? Um, so, so it's 20 bookable studios. Uh, actually, one of the 20 is a, like a meeting and training space called the community room. Um, there's three different types of rooms here. There are rehearsal studios, which are like a single sound isolated room with musical equipment, musical instruments and amplification. There are production suites like the room we're in right now, which are great for podcasting, by the way. For all you podcasters out there. And those are just single sound isolated rooms with production and songwriting equipment in them. So there's like a keyboard and an interface and a channel strip and some microphones and speakers and stuff in here. And then the third type of room we have is your your, your traditional recording studio that has separate isolated spaces for um, the recording engineers and producers. So a control room where all the technology is and then separate spaces for recording booths, live rooms, sound locks, etc. And you also operate the organization out of here. We do. This is this is our primary location. So all of our our administrative staff and you know everything it takes to run this place, from the fundraising to the finance function to the HR function to the tech function to repair things, all is based out of out of here. Um, How many people are on staff? We have about uh, sixteen employees at the moment, and that fluctuates um, seasonally. And you know as we. We're constantly learning and growing and changing and shifting. And, and so we've been operating this new space for about two and a half years and are still learning how to do it. Um, so that, that number fluctuates a little bit. Would you say that you're the only nonprofit who's doing things this way in this region? Yes. I've maintained that Record Co. isn't that special of a snowflake for a long time. And it's in the last couple of years that I've started to understand the ways in which we are actually unique and perhaps, you know, standing alone. Um, so I've always, I've always kind of thought of it as a recombination of things that already existed. You know, there are hourly rehearsal facilities out there. There are monthly rehearsal facilities out there. There are nonprofits that are focused on, you know, giving people access to music making. Um, but, but I think there are a couple of things about us that are truly unique. I think the scale and level of quality is really unique. Oftentimes it's music as a vehicle for something else. And so the facilities that get built are really, you know, set up for, for example, developing young people and the music technology and instruments and space and all that are kind of a secondary, they're an afterthought to the original very noble and important goal of developing young people. And we've kind of done that the other way around, where we've said, what we're going to do is build a space that is of a commercial quality that's useful to 
music makers across that entire spectrum from someone that's just like, I want to, I'm 13 and I want to see if this is interesting or not all the way up to, I'm a career producer engineer who needs a space to run my business out of, or I'm the music supervisor for the Disney corporation. And I need somewhere to do a cast recording for something that's happening. You know, some movie I can't tell you about, you know, that full range. And the other thing that's super exciting about that, that both technologically and culturally is that you end up with this melting pot uh, like literally a pot the coffee pot like where people are bumping into each other and going oh dan i haven't seen you in a long time what are you up to oh so and so i you know we we grew up together but it's been years this happens all the time where like a staff person or someone else is like running into someone they haven't seen in a decade and oh i'm in room four come check it out oh i'm in studio b come so see it's what a we're hub. working on it's a hub it's a hub and so it's and it's a good it's a great accessory for the other environments that people are making music in you know we get that question a lot well, why, you know, when, when we can make hit records on our phones, on our computers, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that making a hit is the priority, um, certainly not for everybody, but um, we can make really high quality recordings, you know, in the air on a laptop between, you know, on our way from one city to another. Uh, we can make great stuff in our bedrooms. This wasn't true 30 or 40 years ago, not that long ago. And so, you know, people ask, what's the justification for the existence of a recording studio like this? And it had, in my opinion, is it's changed a lot. I don't think there is a technical argument. It's nice to be able to play uh, really loud stuff in the middle of the night, which is hard to do in an urban environment when your neighbors are going to call the cops on you or whatever. So there's like, there's that one, like can't play drum set at 2 a.m. kind of a thing. But other than that, it's a social, cultural, socio-professional argument, not a technical one. We don't need to have all this stuff that we have in here in order to make a good podcast, right. but it's helpful to have a place that's not our house well, to and get together. Especially if you want to learn how to get good at technology, too. I mean, there's that. It's um, having having more tools, right? Like a good carpenter can build a house with a mm-hmm. shitty hammer, but having a bunch of different tools at your disposal makes makes building the house a bit easier. <laughs> so my background is that I used to manage bands and work in the music business in New York in my 20s. And... Um, I won't say how old I am now. But, how long um, ago was that, Amy? <laughs> <laughs> um, we can so do the math. I spent some time in some recording studios and rehearsal places, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the, the idea of the record code to me as a nonprofit and as a community space and kind of all things to all people was super foreign at the at the time and you know i do different things now and i can look at it differently and it's it's really remarkable and especially at a time you know we're here talking about arts music culture displacement and we mostly in the mainstream talk about that in terms of like the venues that have been lost and now we're talking about art studios and music rehearsal studios but the thing that we haven't talked about is recording studios and through our travels, you know, there's been lots of recording studios that have, I don't know about been displaced, but, you know, they can't afford to operate and all these other things. So I guess you what I'm getting... You probably know, like Fort Apache was down in this neighborhood. Q Division used to be in this neighborhood. Yep. And Unfortunately, um, Q's still around. Fort Apache didn't make it. Yeah. And, but they made a lot of cool shit. Um, I guess what I'm referring to now is like the nonprofit model. And the, I feel like that is a new thing, at least in this area. Do you... Like, that's how this works, right? Like, it's not about... This is heavily reliant on philanthropy to keep the cost of access for music makers low. So if you're having a session here, there's someone you will never meet who's paying for the other half of your session. If we charge what it actually costs to provide this, everything here would be twice as expensive as it is. So and by if we wanted design, to make a profit on it, 
in order to fund growth or return dividends to investors or shareholders or something, if we had to do that, it would be more than twice Mm -hmm. the cost. So So mission mission wise and by design, you set out to offer affordable slash subsidized opportunity by design. Yeah. Yeah. The idea. Well, and I mean, it was it. I think it started a little bit more simplistic than that. And it was just like in order for this to exist, because this business model doesn't work anymore, we're going to have to come up with some other source, both for the cost to set these environments up, but also for the ongoing cost of operating them. We're going to have to come up with some other source of money Mm -hmm. because the end user can't pay anymore. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean just like the individual musician who's making an album to try and start their own career. I'm talking about the label. The label doesn't want to pay anymore. So even for those very few artists who have the sort of administrative support of a label, they're not making speculative investments in recordings. Oh, hey, we're going to make a bunch of recordings and that's going to produce hopefully a financial return in the future. Like, no, they don't want to pay for studio time either. So it doesn't really matter who we're talking about. The business model of recording studio doesn't work so well anymore. Right. And that's really, you know, so a bunch of my comrades at the time that TRC was becoming what TRC now is, you know, a bunch of us traditionalists are like, what is this? And how is this happening? And how is it nonprofit? And how is it getting funding? And wow. And a lot of very generous people who will never bother you. Right. But are happy to make sure you have somewhere to create your shit. But it's just, (laughs) I guess what I want to applaud and acknowledge is that it's a different model you know and that by design is super useful and there's there's some other wacky financial instruments in play here too and i won't bore you with the details but there's this thing called a new markets tax credit that's a federal tax credit program that we leveraged for um nearly a million dollars of the build cost here came from securing and then brokering the sale of a tax credit that we don't need because we don't pay tax. Um, but we sold to JP Morgan Chase uh, for 80 cents on the dollar to basically convert the tax credit into cash that we could then use to build. And the, yeah, if I, the closing binder from the 50 lawyers that worked, it was like 20 lawyers that worked on that. Um, it was 300 documents. It's like 1,500 pages. We should have a whole podcast just about that. It's nuts. Well, and you and you got to ask Jim about it, too. Ask Jim what a new market tax credit is and see if his head flies off his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of those things where it's like me and the clerk of the corporation with two notaries for two hours just signing paperwork. Again, the kind of thing that we do, uh, you know, and this was like the 26th of December, I think, too. Like, we had to get it done before the end of the calendar year. It was a nightmare. Um, but these, this is what we do. We exist to find these creative ways that are, you know, way outside of the interest or discipline of the people we serve. You know, basically have to be, had to become real estate development professionals. We had to become financial lawyers and financial professionals and lean on a lot of them to figure all of these, to do all these machinations to ultimately make this space possible. And I truly believe, and this is like, I think our best and highest purpose, that no individual musician, music maker, should have to know how to do all that shit in order to get together with other musicians and create music. (laughs) And so that is the function we serve, is to be that facilitation administrative layer in between that says, oh, wait a second, there's some institutional resources or some philanthropic resources or whatever over here. If we just use what we know about that world and about what music makers need and act as a translational layer, we can do some good. And well, we, sh- we should get on to 55, too, because, you know, the, the we met a while back, 
And we were like, yeah. listen, we already have this big ass building. Well, that I was we going to say, about. if you're being that intermediary layer, so now we can move to 55. And what we mean by that is 55 Morrissey Boulevard in Dorchester, which is an interim rehearsal, music rehearsal studio complex to rehome the displaced musicians from 155 North Beacon Street in Brighton, known as the Sound Museum. Um, I refer to it as a crisis intervention right. when I'm talking about it. It's it's the first crisis intervention we've ever been involved in. And I'm not sure. A- ask me in a year if we're going to be involved in any more <laughs> crisis interventions. But how did it, so, how did it yeah. go, Sasha? Let, let, let's talk about that. And let's talk about... Let, well, so first of all, let's what assume that people <laughs> don't know what it was and like what you walked into and what we now have and the process in between. So the Art Stays Here Coalition was turned on to 55 Morrissey Boulevard as... Uh, empty office spaces that were waiting to be redeveloped into life science buildings. It's not residential. I've never. I, I oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. The, the LVI one is is life science, and the 55. I is, think 55 yeah, is yeah, supposed okay, to be yeah. residential. Okay. So um, I was like, not more life science. Oh my god. It was serendipity that we came upon it. Thank you to Catherine O'Neill and. She talked to Matt Snyder of Center Court Partners, who own the property, and said, hey, can you help these musicians out for a couple of years? Um, And they were going to be empty and vacant anyway. So um, over Christmas and over New Year's, a bunch of people helped get this together. Let me also set the stage that the musicians... Right. So at the Sound Museum, they would have to uh, vacate by the end of February. Yeah. And uh, this was already mid-January. And... um, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes negotiations with lots of different people trying to extend them uh, into March and trying to get more time to do this build-out and to try to make it a seamless transition. And I will say from my own experience of visiting 55 every week during that process that um, I've never seen people work so hard. I have never seen such work being done 24-7 around the clock constantly. Um and commitment to getting it done to serve the musicians. And um, my own husband, Jim Healy, came with me and visited every single time. And he said, this is never going to be ready in time. It's never going to be ready in time. And he <laughs> and sat it here. It was two days late. It was late. two days late. Ah! No, he sat here an hour ago and said he could not believe that it was ready in time. And he still doesn't believe You can blame BFD for the two days. He still doesn't believe (laughs) So uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for keeping your word and doing all that work and for everything it cost you. Um, And I'm still recovering. That's what I tell people. I'm still recovering. I, I, I... I understand as much as I can understand, and I will be forever grateful. And so will 500 musicians. It's funny how when you prove something's possible, sometimes you also prove that it's not a good idea. Correct. <laughs> You're like, so right. it's possible, but uh, we don't I know, recommend. We, do. we, we will never do it again. We will never do it again. And asking us how we do it. It will I, never I be asked like, of you again. Don't, don't don't do it on don't. this timeline. <laughs> <laughs> so can you uh, talk about like what actually had to be done, and kind of just like uh, for people who don't understand so, development and build out? Yeah, we're and we're at the part of the story where we needed. Um, I needed a partner, uh, you know, an on the ground, boots on the ground partner to help me, um, you know, as kind of the chief real estate person for the organization, the person with the most construction and real estate experience um, needed somebody who already knew how the organization worked, someone who, you know, had a comparable work ethic to my own, because as you said, it was going to take 24 seven something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, flash forward to Sasha Pedro the right person for the job. Can you meet me over at 55? I got to talk to you about Uh, something. 
Yeah. Do you want to run this place? That is exactly how it went. And you were like, um... I said, um, I'll get back to you. I have to talk to my therapist first. <laughs> <laughs> I say fire the therapist. You did, you did actually well, say that, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. I, and I did. I called him up and um, because I just knew it was going to be a huge undertaking. And um, one of the reasons I'm, I'm in therapy is because I, I just work too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he rightfully told me that even if you say yes, you can quit. And I was like, right, right. You right. can always renegotiate. I can always, yeah. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, boundaries. It was a unique opportunity. And limits. How could you say no? It's also something I really believe in. We talked about this a little bit, yeah, but your, my your background, background yeah. is in non. It's I have an arts administration degree, and I do you know nonprofit arts work. And my focus was accessible arts spaces, and I I have a long history of playing in um, music rehearsal spaces in Boston, and I also. Um, have a photo studio out of a similar visual arts building, um, but it's like a big factory that was converted into artist space in Rockland. That's where my photo studio is. And so I exist in spaces like this. I really care about it. Um, and it was very cool to be invited to help make one of those possible. Well, um, I also want to say thank you for everything that you did and everything that you gave up uh, during that time. Um, but, a lot of sleep. So talk about the <laughs> talk about the build out a little bit. Like you know, you had to what frame it, build walls, mud. Yep. Talk. I mean, just uh, you inherited. So when on your first day, you inherited a set of preliminary design development drawings um, that basically had us adding a significant number of rooms. Mm-hmm reconfiguring a bunch of stuff we added about 40 rooms i believe and and so there's a total of about 90 rooms in the building so we nearly doubled the room count and that was a combination of like adding rooms that didn't exist in open floor area and then also reconfiguring existing rooms so that they were now distinct absolutely from one another and the building is two floors Mm -hmm. it does have an elevator it does not have a freight or any of that stuff um it has a giant parking lot. It has a reception area. Um, keep going. Oh, sure. So it has a few common areas. Is it 35% of the building is? What's the percentage? About 30%, About 30% of the building is common areas. So there's a couple. That's Those are common areas that we inherited. So there was a large kitchen, and we divided that up into some new rooms. But we kept a portion of the kitchen that actually gets used. I, I went into it saying, I don't understand why we need a kitchen. Who's going to use a kitchen? And it's, it's occupied constantly. People <laughs> come there and work. People eat with their bands yep. um that first week that we were yeah. open there was like people the 20 something brownies like, for us no there was like that group oh, of 20 milk and somethings oh, that milk were and eating cookies. milk and cookies <laughs> before the rehearsal and we're like, shout out the, to little fuss <laughs> this is the cutest thing yeah I've it ever gets seen. used all the time that we have a fridge we have like a um tenant fridge in there and it's always full of um so that's full of beers that we drink joy, no no i i, I sent out a polite email telling people they could not keep beer in the tenant fridge and oh. it's they've been responsive which is good because people also like bring their kids and hang yeah, out yeah well we, like, have some, don't leave we have beer some tenants who are 21 the and i just worry a little bit about it <laughs> mm-hmm. um but people can keep many fridges in their room am i allowed to say that sure okay yeah, uh, just please just request the you know mini fridge in your portal and yeah. we'll go ahead and <laughs> as long as you follow the, <laughs> proper, the proper channels portal. we'll say yes um yeah so there's um there's a big lounge upstairs that gets a lot of use there is the kitchen and there's the lobby those are all used a lot there's a couple smaller lounges that we call them throughout that occasionally get use um there is a huge number of service level parking spots we are within walking distance we're just like about a 
block and a half from the JFK UMass Red Line stop. Um, there's a grocery store in the building next door, which again gets a lot of and use, Starbucks, so which has a Starbucks yeah, that's run by a witch is coming. <laughs> um, that's another story we'll tell you. But we have a theory that there's a, a witch is coven being run out of the Starbucks. And so you said it's fully occupied. It is fully occupied. We're at 100. Comes with Wi-Fi. Um, we do. We have a we have Heat a Wi-Fi network for our tenants. Or? We have HVAC. Uh, we have a working elevator. We have methods Multiple of bathrooms. contacting. We do. We have bathrooms that we go to great lengths to keep stocked as best we can. Um, we have cleaning on a multiple times a week cleaners come basis. Uh, we have, um, you know, we have lights, we have electricity, uh, we have methods of contacting our staff. We try to make ourselves very accessible. Um, I've existed People in a lot of spaces phone. where I don't, I don't even know who operates it or who owns it or mm-hmm. how to, get a key and so we make ourselves we have we have we make ourselves really available to tenants and for the most part that's been a good thing it's amazing what the like just on the one hand it it is kind of disheartening how low the bar is where it's like oh you know having cleaners and toilet paper is like a big deal it's a huge departure huge big deal huge um and on the other hand uh, on the more you know glass half full kind of thing it's amazing how little it it actually takes to build a community of people who actually come out of their rooms and like run into each other in the kitchen oh. and are like friendly. And to your point, that the, first week people were just like we were bringing each other people, donuts. So and, again, something like, sort of unique about our building that, that I've that never witnessed before. On the phone where the one guy was like, no, I'm at the new, it's 55 Morrissey Boulevard. I'm at the new building. There's hot chocolate in the lobby. Yeah. And they're just like, we're Which, sitting right there and they're just like screaming <laughs> on their phone about it. And we're like, this is great. Sorry, it's, I cut you off. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, a unique thing with our building that I've never experienced that another building is uh, the majority of the tenants moved in all at the same time so it operated kind of like a college dorm and people had their doors propped open and they were passing each other a lot and so uh, everybody's moving in on the they, same they, day. yeah they were all they were all like exploring each other's rooms and figuring out ways to collaborate I saw a lot of good photos of a series of folk who all had kind of the same haircut and they, uh, and they were all like met at the tracking floor. each other yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they were they were like recreating meme photos and stuff like that and to Matt's point one of the, oh, the tenants Spider-Man meme? yeah, yeah one funny. of the tenants the um, one of the first weeks we were open brought in boxes and boxes of donuts and hot chocolate and put it at the front Aww. lobby desk and it was gone within an hour. It's just yeah, like word spread it throughout up, the building. You were a little cynical about Again, it. You're I like, like oh, I, I'm upset gonna... I didn't have to be composting these donuts at the end of the week when nobody eats them. And like an hour later, yeah, everybody was in yeah, there. They, yeah, they cleared out immediately. And, and then people hung out in the lobby. So, and that is important to us. And uh, something I hear about in the lobby on March 7th. some studios <laughs> is that um, they do pizza nights and they do beer nights over there. And if tenants want, they can come out and hang out. And I think that's a really awesome uh, community-focused events and rehearsal spaces make sense. Again, I'm used to showing up, going into my room and leaving. The only time I ever bumped into someone at Charlestown Rehearsal Studios is when I was there moving out mm. um, because they were doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's the only time I've seen someone in that hallway ever. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to create, um, looking forward at 55, we're trying to create some opportunities for tenants who want to connect and meet others in the building. We'll have the chance to do so. Our online tenant management platform does have a discussion board that gets a little bit of use. Um, and we send out a monthly newsletter and things like that. And we're working towards having at least a pizza night. I'll be there. Pizza day. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. See you there. So um, Cheese, how has um, 
Now that we're kind of on the other side, even though you're still traumatized, rightly so, um, how has running we do it all for the musicians? How okay. has running fifty five and seeing the success of it um, influenced TRC and its future? Well, Matt always says he kind of knew from the beginning that we're not getting out of the monthly rehearsal business. Um, there's a real need for it. Uh, buildings. I, I get emails almost on a weekly basis of from musicians who are joining our waitlist and have been displaced from their building. Um, and so the need never goes away. And so looking forward, um, since the beginning, we've been keeping our eyes out for possible buildings that we can move the 55 operation to. Um, we do see a demand south of the city. There's a, at least a few spaces in the northern part of Boston and, and north of Boston. But on the south shore and in southern Boston, there's not much. And so we're looking to help serve this area. We're just not sure what that service is actually going to look like. Yeah, we Record Co. has some big, interesting strategic questions to answer, which we expect to have answers by uh, answers to by the end of this calendar year. So we're in... What the uh, nonprofit jar? Amy, is that your dog? It is. That's the cutest. His name is Derwood. I now have here? you ever met a dog named Derwood? The it's way just funny because zeros see, five o'clock is on his eyes right now. <laughs> so Derwood is a rescue dog from Arkansas, and oh, my dog's a rescue dog from Arkansas. And he is it uh, Last Hope Canine? Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. they operate out of there. But he um, that's a strange coincidence. Came with the name Derwood. And we would have never kept that, but he knew the name. So <laughs> he, he likes Derwood. So he keeps the name, and um, everyone. The, so he, he's six now. But we, everyone was like, "You got to change the name. You got to change the name. You got to change the name." We're like, "He knows the name. <laughs> We're not changing the name." So he's still Derwood. Derwood. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, okay, Derwood's awesome. And, Thank you. And we digress. Um, Are we dog friendly at fifty five? Just kidding. Uh, uh, um, yeah. Well, no. Officially, yes. we're not. Officially, yeah. unfortunately, it's, my dog occasionally has to come to work with me. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, it so is you're saying strategic questions that TRC uh, is asking itself. Yeah. So we're we're in strategic planning mode right now, which is like the nonprofit jargon way of saying, "Hey, we had a plan for what we were going to do for the next three or four years, and we've more or less gotten to the end of that plan. So now it's time to make another one." Our last one was that clarifying moment, I that moment of focus that I described earlier, where we said, "Hey, listen." We are space and technology operators. There are so many amazing youth developers, so many amazing educators, so many amazing programs that use music as a vehicle for recovery, for therapy, for you know X, Y, Z. We don't need to do any of that stuff. What we need to do is provide space and technology both for individual music makers, but also for those adjacent organizations that need this kind of space and shouldn't have to be in the business of building studios in order to offer a music therapy session. Like that's not, they're therapists. They're not... Construction professionals, real estate developers. So anyway, that last plan said, build a bigger space, fill it full of people. And we have more or less done that. Like I said, we've got about 3,500 unique people a month using this space. And then another 500 unique people or so a month at 55. Um, Can you talk about um, what we were mentioning out in the hallway about the intra, inter. Oh, sure. Of 55 and 960? Yeah. Um. I mean, just just briefly on that, and then I I want to I want to uh, hit on the the larger strategic question thing too because sure. I, I do think it's interesting and it's worth talking about. And also, sure. anyone listening to this should know that there will be surveying and focus groups and other things coming from Record Co. asking for community participation in answering some of these questions because all the decisions we make are in theory 
in response ba- based on what mm-hmm. is actually needed like the fact that this facility uh you know 11 of the 20 rooms are for rehearsal was actually not a part of the original plan that was drawn up for this facility the reason that there's rehearsal here is because when we went out to community they were like hey listen like why does the drawing have uh, venue performance space on it we need venue and performance space but what are we going to have to perform if we have nowhere to rehearse. write and rehearse and create stuff? And so we we pivoted and we said, okay, actually, we're going to have a facility that's based on the making part of it, not the exhibiting part of it. And we'll focus on the exhibition part Later. in the future, if at all. Um, so anyway, it was a, that was pretty interesting because the first drawings of this place were like four recording studios and two venues um, as opposed to. Um, what it is now so kind of like more like a machines with magnets setup as opposed to as opposed to how this is configured now um so anyway that there is about 30 percent overlap right Sasha, yeah, um, between the two properties yeah i did the math about um i don't know a month ago and we saw that there were between trc and 55 50 30 percent of 55 tenants were also users at the 960 location and the majority of those are actually originally 960 users who joined us at 55 there's not so far not too many people going from 55 back, back to 960 over. though recently in the parking lot here at 960 i encountered some 55 tenants who are coming here for the first time to record their album and then when i encountered they were them having the same experience that you're having where they're like wait a second they couldn't cool say enough there. good things about 960 yeah they were pumped so to um, explain what all that jargon means to people who don't know is that after the Sound Museum displaced musicians who had first dibs at 55 to yes. rehearse there, there was still some vacancies. And so some of the clients from the original TRC who had been using hourly and recording became monthly tenants over there as well. And now... All kinds of people from over there are using the facilities here and back and forth and vice mm-hmm. versa, which is, to me, kind of awesome yeah. and amazing. And like, meaning you came and helped us, the coalition, and helped all these musicians, but now they're all get to use this and then they get to branch that out. And it's it's actually building more community every single day. I agree. Um, and there's a lot of diversity in the building that I wasn't expecting. And I don't even just mean racially, though there is that. It's not a particularly white building. And I, again, I'm used to existing in kind of like grungy punk spaces that are predominantly white. Um, but 55, in addition to being racially diverse, has a whole like myriad of genres and ages in there. Um, I'm thinking specifically of our um, pal who is a bagpiper. Um, he's <laughs> He's an older man, and he was using 960 to rehearse when he needed to, um, but he wanted his own space, and so he picked up a vacancy at 55, and he loves it. He's there a few times a week, um, which is great. So we have a bagpiper. We have a, Matt, a... um, Marimba? We have a marimbist. Marimbist? Who shares a room with um, a grungy punk band. Um, so in, the, in like one wall in their room is just Perfect. a marimba. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the grungy punk band is like, how? I remember when they were deciding whether they were going to be roommates. They <laughs> the were like, wait a like, second. He just plays one is, instrument. How big is the marimba? <laughs> how big is it? Where is it going to go? What's the answer? How big is it? <laughs> it's like nine feet. <gasps> it's pretty big. Yeah, it's long. Wow. Um, but they're getting along great. They're still sharing and have been since the beginning. So that's cool. Um, the, and <laughs> how then, big is the marimba, And then what dude? we have is a lot of of um, producers Um, and that's something that in part comes from the neighborhood that we're in and the community around here. Our assistant manager right now is a producer in the area. He's actually performing in Cambridge tonight. Um, And so what that has demonstrated to me 
um, again, I'm just used to playing in loud bands and hearing the loud band down the hall and that's the way it goes, but there actually is a demand for a quieter building where music can still happen. Um, and so when we're looking, whenever anybody asks my opinion um, on this, which happens occasionally, is uh, I really think a wing of a building needs to be quiet. I found out, I didn't know this, I found out the Sound Museum did have quiet hours. Um, I think it was 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. I don't know if it was every day, but it was producer hours so that people could go in there and do um, quiet work, acoustic work, um, recording work, and all that stuff in the building would be quieter. Yeah. Um, you also have people doing lessons. We absolutely right? do. Um, we have we have a number of businesses yeah. um, that operate out of 55. Um, I, I would say, to my knowledge, and I probably don't know all of them, to my knowledge, about 15 businesses operate out of 55. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So from here, and especially now that we have this monthly facility that's teaching us about that use and what you know, what folks need out of it. Um, you know, we have to decide, we, we also get a, a lot of, um, yeah, it's okay. a lot we'll of inquiries, you know, week, week to week, probably two to three inquiries a week at this point from folks in other communities, other cities across the country, um, basically asking for a record co in their community Great. or asking us to advise them about how to do that. Um, and so that's a pretty, that's become a pretty regular part of my job is responding to these inquiries. And, you know, we take all those phone calls for a couple reasons. One, because um, I feel we feel a sense of responsibility having used um, public resources and having used the generosity of our donors to create all of this. Like we have an obligation to share what we've learned. It's not you know, there aren't any secrets. It's not proprietary. Um, and you don't own your customers. They're free to come and go as they want, wherever they want to go. As you've seen in the, the lobby of our building here, the knee, the big neon sign that says more is more. Um, this is about abundance. There could not possibly be enough rehearsal spaces. And there are so many different types of music makers, so many different needs, so many different preferences that we could have a hundred different operators of music spaces operating 350 spaces combined and we wouldn't meet the need the the it, it the abundance or when i hope we have an abundance a greater abundance of music making space the the demand is inextricably linked to the supply and i always i always look at the live performance scene in nashville as a or places like nashville as a good example people say well nobody wants to go out and see live music and it's like no 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 if people can have a fluid and enjoyable uh, experience that doesn't take a whole lot of work, that's not a high level of effort, and can go out and see a show, this is the magic of a place like Nashville. There is such a high concentration of those sort of opportunities, to, opportunities to see live music, is that you just walk up and down the street and whatever you hear coming out of a door or a window that you like, it's exposure. you go into that bar. And if you don't like that, you, then you go into the next spot. Yep. And and one of the challenges of Boston as a community for that, um, both for live music, but also for, for rehearsal and recording and all this stuff, is that without that choice, the demand for it actually changes shape. And it either leaves town or people find all kinds of creative ways, like working at home, to do this work. And so when you start giving them options, and this is the thing that people that are more scarce have a more of a scarcity mindset who are thinking like, oh, I have to like this is competitive. Yeah. This is competitive. And therefore, I must I must not share this resource that I have with someone else or I I must not look at the fact that this person I work with is also working with this other person is also working at that other place, et cetera. I, you know, I have to look at that as bad because I must try and collect these people and keep them close to me. Um, 
The thing that folks that are scarcity minded like that fail to recognize is that an abundance mindset actually grows the overall size of the whole pie. Absolutely. What you're doing is you're 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 helping people develop a deeper appreciation for our discipline, whether mm-hmm. that discipline is music making or recording or production. When when someone comes here and runs a session on their own for the first time as a producer or engineer here, or when an artist comes here and is in a studio for the first time, all we have done is growing the we've grown the overall total addressable market for people who are looking for recording studios. Uh, we're looking for, you know, to be in a recording studio. And so the idea of like indoctrinating people into the culture of and indoctrinating is not a great word, introducing people to the culture of being in a recording studio. You know, the idea that that's anything but good for the overall music ecosystem is hilarious to me. It's like, no, no, this is people leave here going, I can't wait to get in a recording studio again. Right. That is good for the studio and the recording and engineering you know, business. The, the thing I wanted to say about the strategy part is we, ha- we have to decide how much of our work is um, is outside of Boston, if any. OK. Uh, and so there's you mean Boston of, proper, greater Boston. I no, mean, I just mean because we get asked all the time and because we can recognize the potential value of having record co outposts mm-hmm. you know, beyond Boston and mm-hmm. other cities. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine if you were touring. Oh, in, you're not talking about South Shore. You're talking about other. No, states? I'm talking about like like, you know, I he's modest, but he gets we got a call today. He gets contacted nonstop of opening tears. Some was, people was, saying, how can I do this where Portland, I live? Or Oregon can you today, come I here think. and do this yeah. where I live? When we opened up 55, I had a couple tenants stop by our front desk and say, hey, my family lives in wherever. They're having the same issue where artists are being displaced. How can we do this there? Yeah. Um, it is he so he, he's asked nonstop. So we have to decide as an organization what our response to these questions are going to be. And it's it's probably some combination. You know, the, the truth is probably in the middle. But if we look at kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum, um, just for the sake of argument, there's a inch wide, mile deep approach, which is inch wide as in keep the geography really tight, keep the resources that we actually operate here in greater Boston in the region or the city. And then go a mile deep, provide as many types of services, as many services as we possibly can to just pour, 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 pour support into this community. Just just a deluge of support of a variety of types to try and meet the need of this community as best we can. Um, and then, of course, use or share out the knowledge of those interventions so that people in other places can can do that. Um, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the mile wide inch deep strategy, which is keep the offerings actually um, relative, keep the list of offerings relatively short. Okay, it's monthly rehearsal and hourly rehearsal or whatever. Get those models and those formulas tight and then replicate that Everywhere. as many places as possible. Um, and of course, the sharing and learning and consulting and helping people in other cities do this, you know, so that we're not solely operating all these spaces is the kind of hybrid model that exists somewhere between those two strategies. And from an ethical perspective is actually probably the best move because parachuting down into someone else's community and being like, we're here and we know what you need is like not great practice. Uh, no. Certainly not Teach. good community development Tools. practice. Right. Tools. Yeah, yeah. So I could imagine, and again, ask this in a couple months when when we publish our next strategic plan, mm-hmm. which is a public you know document that anyone can check out, and it'll say here's where here's what we expect to do over the next three to five years, um, you know, three years of relative clarity, and then two years of just wild ass guess, um, swag. Um, <laughs> anyway, 
uh, ask us again in a few months, I suspect we will probably hybridize those two approaches, continue providing services here, and then look at a sort of powered by Record Co. model for interventions outside of the city where everything other than the part, like all the technical systems, all the technical assistance, all the operating practice, the manual that says, like, here's how you do it. You open the place this way, you close the place this way. Here's how you raise the money. Here's what your operating pro forma should look like. Here's the options for how to finance the Open real estate source. development part of it. Right. That that would be more or less published and that we would be available to consult to help you. And so it would be, again, you'd be opening your own space in your city where you have the trusted relationships with your own, and with your it community. your specific needs, right. And yeah, and you'd customize it a bit to meet your specific needs, but the underlying sort of technology, technical stack, fundraising strategy, um, you know, financing strategy would would be based on what we've learned here. Um, so again, kind That's of a powered, super by, exciting. powered by model. Well, yeah. it's super exciting. We're pumped. We, um, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> always. I have two questions. Um, so I'll say the questions and then you can decide how you want to answer them. Sure. If you had 55 to do over again, how would you do it differently? And like, I mean, I mean that like for real, right? Like, so meaning best practices, if you're, if there's another intervention, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't have to say the details, but just the broad strokes. And then the last question is, if this room were filled with funders and a governor and a mayor and city councilors and lots of people who either have <laughs> power or access or can help all of our situations, what would you say to them? What would you ask? What would you say? So I'm just, just going to quote Jim Grace from the end of oh, the, the end of the article. Go ahead. You know, um, the answer is money. What's the question? Um, but it's yeah, I I, I do want to answer that. I'm, Jim Grace is brilliant, and I love when he says that. Um, but I, I I can't answer the question. I'm curious what Sasha would say about 55. What would you do differently? We talked a little bit about how much work it took for us to do it. I worked 12 to 15 hours a day every day for like seven days a week for what 10 weeks 10 or 12 weeks 10 yeah. to 12 weeks um it was and towards the end of it I couldn't do a good job because I hadn't slept for weeks um we had an incredible team of contractors who is actually who made that project possible yeah there were times when you and i were walking out at three in the morning and the electricians were showing up absolutely and we're like, what are you guys doing here and they're like well we have to add 70 devices before the fire department comes back at 7 p.m tonight so it's, we're starting now everybody involved in the project actually <laughs> cared and that was very very nice yeah um and it's the only way it was actually possible but in a perfect world it wouldn't have had to have been done in eight weeks and i would have slept more um, I, also I think that part speaks to technical assistance for operators that are being displaced, you know, so so for example, this was no like the fact that this was going to happen was knowable, right? It didn't have to be such a fire drill. There could have been process and engagement that happened sooner. I think in the case of 155 North Beacon, a, a group of benevolent folks had to sort of clean up the mess yeah <laughs> and bear the brunt and bear the brunt of it yeah brunt bruntmeister yeah, keeps coming up. <laughs> um yeah so there's a bit of that um we learned something fundraising for it um which is we the record co as an organization put out um fronted the money for this and then anticipated being able to raise that money back 
um, through fundraising for the project after the fact. But the reality is no one wants to give you money for something you've already um, done and spent, et cetera. Um, they want to give you money for future projects and not something you already did. So we actually, um, replenishing the funds that we spent has actually been uh, a challenge and was um, a point of contention with our board. And so kind of to what Matt was just saying, um, if we had a room of people who could take on some of the responsibility there. Uh, it's it's a very challenging it's very challenging to convince people to make speculative investments. It's something the for-profit world knows very well. I'm happy to make a speculative investment because my money might turn around and create a significant financial profit. So yeah, I'll invest in your thing. Let's figure out how to get you a cheeseburger even faster than you can already get one. Okay, I'm in. But when we go to solve some of the world's most, and I'm, I'm not putting music space in this category, just to be clear, um, it is, it's on a very long list of needs, needs in the world. Um, and it doesn't, I would never recommend, even to our donors, that we were their number one priority. There are causes they need to be paying very close attention to, and we're grateful for, we're grateful to be number 10 or number 20 on their list. Um, and we certainly don't need as much money as some of those other causes do. All that qualifying aside, when it comes to solving the world's most complex and challenging social issues, for some reason, philanthropy, government, etc., are not willing to make speculative investments in risky interventions. And big, risky, hairy, difficult problems require really significant investment on the speculation that It'll pay off. That it'll pay off. That something will happen. And instead, they make you, you know, prove, they insist that you basically, that you essentially prove that the thing you say is going to happen is going to happen before they'll make a, even a modest investment in what you're doing. And that's really, really difficult because nobody can predict the future. And the, again, the way the for-profit world looks at this is like, do we have the right team? Do we have a, a group of committed people who, do we believe that they will figure it out? And if we do then we will pour money into what they're doing. And in the the nonprofit sector, we don't think like that at all. We say, can they absolutely, with beyond a shadow of a doubt, prove Provable. that it's going to work before it happens? There's no risk. And there's no allowance for risk. Yeah, there's a very low risk tolerance. And so that's, I'm glad you said the word risk, because the way I describe that money that we spent on 55 is as risk capital. We happen to be in a position at the moment that we were called to do it to have a significant amount of capital on our balance sheet that we could electively, in that moment, in real time, choose to deploy, as, to, to, and to take a risk that we could deploy that money. To be and your make own a, philanthropy. Yes, and to make a big difference. <laughs> and so what we need, connecting this back to what Sasha was saying, is we need the funder community of donors, government, et cetera, to start understanding, and also Jim Grace will want to talk to you a lot about this, to start understanding that unless the money is already sitting in an account that we control, when the call comes in, when the red phone rings and we pick it up, yep. we have to be able to move really quickly. And we can't move quickly if we have to do what we did for this facility we're in right now, which is spend two years talking about it and raising money before we can put a shovel in the ground. The only reason 55 happened was because our donors are mad fucking cool and they put a bunch of money on our balance sheet knowing that we would make a good decision about what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And so now they also, to Sasha's point, have to be willing to replenish it. Um, and they are, to, to some degree. Mm -hmm. But the, it's mostly the individuals who understand this, and especially the individuals who have earned the money that they're donating 
through for-profit business pursuits who understand the relationship between these two things. That is where the funds come from. Yeah, it comes from business people who understand that they have to think about their philanthropy in the same way they thought about making all their money in business, where it's like, we have to make risky investments to solve very problems. Creative business people to school philanthropy. 100%. Yes, or or merge. Yeah. Yeah. No, philanthropy is way too conservative. It's it's hilarious um, how conservative it is. So if, even in the most liberal of places, if we did this again, I would better accommodate people's needs. Um, a tricky thing when we tried to do that intentionally, we tried to place people in the building based on their sound level and their genre. But what happens is you would place someone and then, uh, you know, they'd email me. It'd be a metal band and they'd email me and I'd have them in a string of metal bands and they'd email me and they'd say, hey, actually, we found a different space. And then all of a sudden there's only one room available and the next six and people a are, wait metal list bands, yeah. are and the marimbist. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> things like that. Or, um, you know, the there was a, a group of producers in one corner of the building in a quieter corner of the building. A room opened up and like a bunch of drummers needed a room to practice in. And so uh, in an ideal world, the building would be structured in a way that could accommodate all of those folks needs um, because right now while the building is good and it is used a lot there are times in which someone can't get something done based on what's happening in the room yeah. next to them and it's kind of disheartening when they contact well, me because there's there's no solution for that right now and, or to come here and they can yeah, come I, here. I do i do yeah. refer them to that but in order to make a monthly facility where that level of sound isolation and that level of like programmatic sensitivity would exist. Um, it needs to be big enough. It would and have to be big enough and it would have to be a longer term intervention. Yeah. You know, we'd mm-hmm. have to basically we'd have no, to do own the right. building. Do it we'd right. have to own the building mm-hmm. um, in order to be able to justify putting, you know, we spent $400 a square foot here. Uh, we spent $20 a square foot at 55 Morrissey. Right. Um, and so you need, you don't need to spend 400, but you know, 250 a square foot. And you think about, so that means that yeah. every, you know, let's call them, make the math easy. Every thousand square foot studio at two hundred and fifty dollars a square foot costs twenty five grand. Yep. So, did I do that math right? Twenty five with three zeros. Well, a piece of good news is that um, so much learning was done that you now have best practices. Mm-hmm. And let's do it. Um, and we have learned that we need to build both for this facility and the other facility our own technical system. I was just going to say our own. We ha- we're going to have to build an app uh, the yeah. eventually. The the ones that exist don't, suck. Don't meet our <laughs> needs. We actually, I talked to Artist Asylum or Artisans Asylum mm-hmm. uses the same mm-hmm. same platform, platform that we, we do, do for fifty five. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I I met up with um, the their expert over there on mm-hmm. the matter uh, to discuss the platform, and it was basically her telling me it's hopeless. They handed you <laughs> they handed you three pages of their complaints. That's complaint a whole other line about, of business you can get into. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's and what he's saying. We, we have we, talked about there that. There really is a need for it, and that's and that's where that powered by thing could, you know. It we seems, have MIT down the road. It seems hilarious, but actually, you know, developing a tool like that um, could be could make that the, could fund everything else potentially. And yeah, when someone adapts, the use case isn't that when someone huge, does their own version, version of TRC, then there's a platform on which they it. can run it, and everything would. Yeah, work wow. one of our new board Your members kit. was, right. was tech, on about that kit. the other day. Yeah. He was like, that's how you expand. You sell a consulting agreement and then an ongoing license. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. consult totally. for the year or two while they're getting set up. Yep. And then you... Yeah, and then they have support calls and then with they, Matt MacArthur. Thanks for listening to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. 
You can listen to all of the episodes from our website, artstayshere.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our partners, New Alliance Audio, New Alliance East, and The Record Co. And thank you for the funding from Boston's Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. Join the movement at artstayshere.org.